Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Ephesians. As we continue our study through this letter of Ephesians together, we're going to pick up in chapter 4. Chapter 4, we're going to begin um, really in verse 11 this morning is where we're going to begin our, our time walking through the Word. Um, but we will certainly point back to verse 7. And then um, um, Pastor Gerald, when he returns next week, he will pick up in 7. And we'll be going back through this same passage, but with a different emphasis. And I'll, I'll talk more about that. But let's begin reading this morning in verse 7 and just read the passage together. Actually, you know what? Let's begin in verse 1. I'm going to pull a Gerald. Change it up. Let's hear the context. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who ascended or descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints For the work of the ministry, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in your kindness to us today in Christ Jesus. We thank you for him, and we pray that you would be exalted today. Thank you for the gift of your word to us, God. Thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for this study through this letter to the Ephesian church, Lord. Thank you for the fruit it has borne in our lives, Lord. Thank you for a faithful teacher and preacher who has broken that open for us um, in the weeks leading up to today. And uh, God, I just pray that you would stir our hearts today. God, I'm reminded that the gospel is never a call for us to do. It's always a call for us to believe. And so, Father, today I pray that our belief would be rooted and grounded in this this picture that we see in Scripture, that it would be aligned with the objective that you have for us, God, because I believe that when we catch a vision for that, 
and our hearts follow that and our hearts are aligned with your hearts, only then will we pursue this vision. And so, Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts in that way today, Father. Um, Help us to see this picture, God, and then help us to give our lives as an offering, as we just sang, to this vision, Father. Trusting you, resting in the hope that we have in you, um, even as we know that you are going to complete this great work that you have begun in us. So we thank you for your spirit that helps us in this task of interpreting your word and applying it. Father, I pray that your spirit will also challenge us today. Uh, Call us to confession. Lord, strengthen us through your word today. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would be exalted through everything that we do together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I really hate to begin by making a divisive statement. That's not how you want to start a sermon, right? So just a heads up, I'm going to say something that is immediately going to divide the room, okay? Here it is. Grammar matters. I thought about ducking behind the podium. Grammar matters. I just split whole households, and I apologize for that. Grammar matters. And in particular, commas matter. Commas matter. Case in point... Have you, some of you are getting there, some of you are still reading it. Listen, that saves lives, particularly grandma's lives, right? So we rejoice in the comma in that sentence because the meaning changes, doesn't it? Right? Two different meanings. That comma is important, right? It also helps us interpret lists or what appear to be lists or whether it is a list or not. What about this one? My heroes are my parents, Superman and Wonder Woman. In the first sentence, I'm identifying my parents as Superman and Wonder Woman. My parents are not Superman and Wonder Woman. Commas matter. The second one, when I put more commas in, it makes it into a list. My heroes are my parents and Superman and Wonder Woman. We get the idea, right? Commas matter in Scripture. And part of the struggle that we have in interpreting the ancient manuscripts that we have um, into any other language is that the ancient manuscripts have no punctuation. They have none. And so this is why we gather a bunch of very smart people, okay, who get together, who understand the language, who understand um, who understand translation theory, and they are trying to understand the context of what they are uh, translating, and we put them all together and we let them do the hard work of translating and helping us to understand where punctuation belongs, because in some instances it changes everything about the meaning of the passage. You with me? And we see that even today there are several different English translations here. Some of you are using different translations And some of them are going to say different things and phrase things a little bit differently because translation committees have gotten together and they're doing their best to interpret the scriptures and rightly divide it. Okay, one such discrepancy pops up at the beginning of this passage in verse 11 in verse 11. Look back at that passage with me. The word says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let me highlight for you why commas and phrasing is important. Because if this has too many commas and it's made into a list, it changes the meaning drastically. This is what I mean by that. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do the following three things. To one, equip the saints. Secondly, he gave them for the work of the ministry. Third, he gave them for building up the body of Christ. Now, what begins to take shape in our understanding of the church is we begin to believe that only a certain few that God has called and gifted specifically are given those three tasks. Okay? But what I want to submit to you this morning is that that comma doesn't belong there. The two phrases beginning with the word for are subordinate to the preceding phrase to equip the saints. Now, if you didn't understand that, we'll break it apart right now. Okay? Come on, guys. Let's get caught up in grammar. You feel like you're in grammar school? Some of you guys are like, yeah. Some of you guys are like, oh, and I've already lost you. Stick with me. And listen to the difference in the meaning. This is how we must read this passage. Now, what is guiding us in this mostly is context. Context helps us to understand how these phrases relate to one another. Okay? So let's begin to look through it. First, we see a progression here. If you're following your outline there. And he gave. He gave. It's a gift. He gifts the church with this list The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, there is some debate as to what Paul intends here. Is he listing a a list of offices, like the office of apostle, the office of prophet? Or is he listing giftings? So there are giftings like apostles and, and the gifting of prophecy and the gifting of evangelists, the gifting of shepherds. There are some big debate on this and there are some good points made on either side. I tend to believe that he is talking about specific offices here, that there are some offices that he has called specific individuals to hold that office and he has gifted them in a specific way. But here's the truth. It doesn't really matter where you lie on that. You can you can go either direction. Here is what we need to see in this, is that there is a specific gifting that is a thread that runs through all of these, and that is the giftedness of teaching. That God has given the gift of teaching to certain leaders in the church to teach. Okay, And what we see is that there is a function for the teaching. There is a purpose for the teaching. Look at that next phrase. He has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip who? The saints. He has given apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Well, we need to understand that they are not just certain venerated individuals who we hold up and say they have, they have achieved this level of sainthood, and so they are the saints. Who are the saints, brothers and sisters? Turn back to the first chapter of Ephesians. Notice how Paul addresses this letter. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to who? The saints who are in Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus. Paul is not writing this letter to a few specific individuals in the church at Ephesus. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the body of believers. Let me submit this to you this morning, brothers and sisters. This has everything to do about our identity. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are a saint. That word means holy one. Okay? 
And what has happened is Christ came and he accomplished everything necessary to reconcile us with the Father, give us right standing with the Father. And the only way that I have right standing with the Father this morning it has nothing to do with anything that I have done. It has everything to do with my being united with him as my substitute. My faith is in him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we are united with Christ, we are made holy. He made him to be sin, or he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange of the cross. Jesus became our sin on the cross. He became our curse for us. And now, when we repent and place our trust in him, we share in his righteousness. We are made holy with him. We are fused together with him. So what is Paul saying here? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip who? All who are in Christ. The body. The holy ones. Everyone made holy in Christ. But there's another aspect to this. Look back at verse 7 in chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us, Paul says. Each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's Gift. Not only have we been saved in Christ and redeemed in him and made holy in him, we have also been equipped in him. He has given us a measure of his grace. And that's going to build a foundation for everything that we see. None of this passage is going to look to us and say, look, in your, look at yourself in the mirror and see who you are. <laughs> it's all because of Christ. We are made holy in him. We have been given gifts of grace in him. And he enables us to use these gifts of grace. And so what is the function for this group that he lists, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers? Well, it is to equip the saints. For what? Two things we see here. Number one, equip the saints for the work of ministry. When I think of the word work, I immediately think of activity. I think of intentionality. I think of ownership. Think about the work that you do in the career that you have, whatever that work is. There's an ownership there, isn't there? There's a responsibility there. There's an intentionality. If you're going to be a good worker, there better be those things. So this is a very active word. In one way, we can read this. He gave these leaders with teaching abilities to equip the saints to be active in work in ministry. Right? What do you think of when you hear the word ministry? This is something that I've been thinking about this week. I'm afraid too often the only thing that we think of when we think about ministry is service. Is service. Is ministry service? Yes, I made you nervous, but yes, you can say yes. It is good for us to look and understand each other's needs and to meet those needs through exercising our spiritual gifts to serve one another in ministry. But brothers and sisters, ministry also means building up. That's the next phrase there. For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, ministry does not just involve us meeting each other's needs. And it is entirely possible for us to be so busy meeting other people's needs, and that's a good thing, that we're not actually pressing each other into Christ Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? It's entirely possible to do that, to be so busy loving each other in the service that we render to each other that we're not being intentional to push each other in Christ. May I submit this to you? Even in times that we serve each other, we should do it with an intentionality to push each other into Christ. That the goal behind service should be maturity. It should be building up the body of Christ. 
And we were reminded once again that Christianity is not an individual endeavor. Christianity is not an individual endeavor. We have a responsibility to one another. And here is the truth. It's not optional. We have been purchased. We have been purchased. We have been purchased, and he has given the gift of teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. I love a visual that I have every Sunday morning, and I did it this morning. I rolled up my sleeves. Do you see that? I'm not just trying to be like Gerald. And I don't know if Gerald intends this. I don't know, JT, you can tell me. I don't know if he has any intentionality, but maybe he's just hot and he wants to roll up his sleeves. But that has always painted a picture to me, that when Gerald is standing here preaching, he's working. I love that. And he's not just working to work through the text and to teach us something that we grasp on an intellectual level. One of the things I love about the way that Gerald opens the word to us is you can tell that he is busy about the work of equipping the saints. I love that. But you know what I discovered is that he shouldn't be the only one with the sleeves rolled up. That our response to the word as it is taught is to roll our sleeves up too. And just as active as he is in that task, we should be just as active in receiving that task, in responding to that task. This is what Paul is showing us, that the purpose for this teaching is to equip us for work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It all has to do with discipleship. It all has to do with building itself up. It is the body that builds itself up. As the Spirit works through us and accomplishes that, he does it through us. Are you getting that picture? I like what John Stott does. He identifies three false patterns, three false patterns that we can fall into. The first is clericalism. Clericalism is a false pattern where we just give all the work, ascribe all the work to the pastors, to the teachers, to the elders, to the deacons of the church, that they're the ones who do the work and everyone else is passive. That's a dangerous pattern to fall into. And while I don't think that there are many people in our culture who would, who would verbally ascribe to that, we see that a lot of times in churches in our, in our context. Okay? And we can go a bit further. I believe that we hold to a more modified version of it. We would say that it's not just the pastors who are to be working in the ministry for the building up the body of Christ, but maybe God has selected a few individuals from the church, but I'm not one of those people. That is a dangerous pattern to fall into because it's unbiblical. Okay, we need to see that. The second one is on the other end of the spectrum. It's anti-clericalism. Well, let's just do away with all church leaders and we'll just be a body of people who are trying to build each other up. And certainly we see that that is not the pattern in the scriptures, that God has appointed specific people to hold certain offices. We see that. The third is dualism. Dualism, where there's such a hard break between the pastors and the, and the clergy, between the laity, that those two spheres never interact. They never carry over. We see that mostly like in a Roman, uh, Roman Catholicism, where the, the, the clergy and the laity, they don't have anything to do with each other. It's two very specific roles, and they don't ever blur. Brothers and sisters, we have to make sure that we're biblical in the way that our, we understand church the way that we understand the function of the church and the functions of believers in the church. We need to be careful that we don't adopt any of those patterns. So here is the progression that we see here. Equip, work, build. 
He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. All of these he gifted with this gifting of teaching to equip the saints, the holy ones, the people of God for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We already saw back, if you want to turn a page back in your Bible to Ephesians 2, verse 10. Be reminded of this beautiful verse that comes to the end of this beautiful chapter. And notice what Paul writes here. He says, for we are his workmanship. That we is all encompassing everyone who who is in Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've talked about this word workmanship. It's a beautiful word. In the Greek, it's poema. It's the word we get the word poem from. We can see that God in Christ, we are a new creation and he is working something new in us. We are his workmanship, but we are his workmanship for good works. And that workmanship is to be expressed through those good works. And brothers and sisters, that starts right here. That starts in the way that we seek to build the body up, our posture towards one another. We are his workmanship and we are to be equipped to work for the building up of the body. Secondly, we get a picture as we move forward in the passage. A picture. We are to equip, work, and build when? Until. We are to equip, work, and build until. And notice what it says here. Until we all. I don't know if you write in your Bible or if you're keeping notes somewhere else. Write that word down. Circle it. If you write in your Bible, maybe circle that word all. That is an important word. And I'm going to come back and tell you why in just a moment. But it's one that we cannot just skip over until we all attain something. Attain what? Well, this is the picture that Paul is painting for us. This is the picture. This is the objective that God has for the church. Okay? Look at what he says here. Three statements that are three phrases that all begin with the word to. So three objectives here. Until we all attain first to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all attain to the unity. Are you getting a picture by now that unity is a big deal? That has been a huge theme, has it not? All the way through this letter, but especially at the close of chapter 3 and now as we begin chapter 4, unity is a big deal. And God's objective for the church is to attain unity. Is to attain unity of two things. Of the faith. Of the faith. Listen to Jude 1, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. A couple of things stand out to me from that verse. Number one, that this faith was given to us. It's not something that we get to come up with. We are stewards of the truth as God has revealed it to us. Okay? So in that sense, we are stewards of it. Secondly is this word contend. We are to contend for the truth. And so often I've heard this verse preached in a, an apologetic context that when we are defending the faith against those who would seek to maybe tear down elements of our faith or they're arguing against the scriptures or arguing against the idea of God, that we are to contend for the faith. And certainly that is an okay interpretation of this. But we are to contend for the faith. But let me, let me help understand a, a, a fuller understanding of that. That we're not only to contend against, we're, contend, we're to contend for. What Joy just came up here and talked about 
It's an opportunity for us, specifically for women in our church, to come together. And one of the things I think that they're wanting to do is for women to get together and contend together for the faith. Do you, do you get this picture? That we are to struggle together in the word. We are to contend for the faith together. God's word is so very rich. And when I find that I get together with brothers and sisters and I'm talking to them about God's word, there's differences of perspectives and opinions. And we're trying to strive. We're trying to strive for the truth together. And I think that that's what Paul is hinting at here until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And the context here is what we just read at the beginning of chapter four. Look back at it. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord for the Lord. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with each other in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father over all who is over all and through all and in all. What do we mean by attaining the unity of the faith? It's us growing into Christ together. And pushing each other into Christ. That is the context here. And the truth is, in verse 3, this is to be a unity that is to be guarded. Here it is a unity to be achieved. As we push each other into the Word, as we push each other into maturity, what is achieved by that is unity in faith. Unity in the truth. So we are to do the work of the ministry and the building up of the body of Christ, pushing towards unity of the faith. Secondly, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. This word here, knowledge, is a relational knowledge. It is a knowledge that we attain through relationship. So as we walk closely with God, we grow in knowing God. Okay? We know the reality of God. We know the reality of all else from God as we experience Him. So we are to attain unity not only individually in our knowledge of God, but together in our knowledge of God. Look back at the prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. Listen again to what Paul prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Do you hear the plurality of that? In your hearts, through faith, that you, plural, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we pursue the knowledge of God individually, as we pursue it together, He unifies us in that knowledge of Him. What a beautiful picture this is of what He intends to achieve as we do the work of the ministry with each other and push each other in the Word. Thirdly, or secondly, we see to mature manhood. This word mature is a word we've seen before. This word telos, it means completeness, to completeness in him. Listen to uh, what Paul says about that or how he uses this word in 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. There's a maturity even in our minds as the Spirit does the work to transform our minds. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 gives us a picture of what this looks like. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do you hear all of the words there that are to describe us? 
We need to continue pressing on into Christ, rooted, built up, established, abounding. These words should be indicative of who we are in Christ together. What a beautiful picture of what he wants to do in us. Um, listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Listen to his passion for this. Him we proclaim, he writes, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You heard what Ben read this morning from Philippians. You heard Paul's heart for the church. And it's my daughter's favorite verse. I'm going to call her out. Philippians 1.6, he who began a work in, in you, I believe, I'm, I'm confident in this, that he who began this work in you will be faithful to complete this work. I'm convinced of this, that that should shape our posture towards one another in the church. Can we just be real for just a second? We're family, right? It's hard to get along within a family. Anybody feeling me? It's hard. Unity is hard. It's tough. It is difficult. It is gut-wrenching sometimes. But you know what? I can bear with you in the love of God if my posture towards you is that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Because it reminds me that I'm not there yet either. And I'm probably hard to love too. But you know what? Here's the unity. It's the same spirit doing the work of sanctification in my life as is doing that work in your life. And that changes our posture towards one another. I believe that that is the posture that we should have towards one another. That not only we have a vision for him who began that good work in you, completing that work, My greatest desire for you is not to get along with me or agree with me. My greatest desire for you is that you would press into that. Can you imagine how different our relationships in the church would be if that was our posture towards one another? I want your greatest desire for me to be to press into maturity into Christ. I want my greatest desire for you to be to press into maturity into Christ. And then to understand all Paul is saying here about the role that I have been given to do that. That's the vision that we are to have for one another. And do you hear how beautifully Paul expresses that? I love you. I praise God for every remembrance of you. And man, listen, you read the New Testament sometimes and Paul can get pretty riled up at these churches. Right? Right? His confidence is not placed in them. And our confidence shouldn't be placed in each other. Our confidence is in him who began the good work to complete it. That's the posture that we have to have. He goes on to help us understand what this maturity looks like in the next phrase. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The Christian Standard Bible renders that this, this way. I think it's a little easier to understand. It says, with a stature measured by Christ's Fullness. What does that mean? What do we have in mind right now if we were all to close our eyes and I said, I want you to imagine maturity? What would pop into your mind? Probably a whole lot of things. Here's the picture that Paul desires for us to have the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
We make assumptions a lot in the church. We make assumptions everywhere, all the time. And I love this quote I heard somebody say one time. The assumption is the most dangerous form of knowledge. Right? One of the assumptions that we make sometimes is these very churchy words and churchy phrases that we throw around. We just assume that everybody knows what that means. And I think that one of those phrases can be uh, the image of Christ. That we hear that, and everybody would affirm that, yes, I want to grow into the image of Christ. I understand that God is using all things to conform me to the image of Christ. But if we were to, if we were to ask you or somebody was to ask you, what does that mean? Help me understand what it means, the image of Christ. I wonder how many of us would flounder a bit. I want us to understand something this morning as we hear this. And I think that this is very important for the the picture that Paul is painting here. What do we mean by the image of Christ? Jesus in his incarnation was fully God, fully man. Yes, we affirm that. I'm going to ask that again because I would like we affirm that. Yes, he's 100 percent God, 100 percent man. That's beyond us. We, we, can, we can strive at understanding that. I don't think we can wrap our minds fully around it. We accept it by faith. But that is the truth of who Jesus is. He is 100% man, 100% God. And here's the truth. When we think about what Jesus reveals to us, we have no problem saying that Jesus reveals God to us. But sometimes I'm afraid we don't get the other side of that coin. When we look at Jesus, he reveals God to us. That's absolutely right. But what else does he reveal to us? Humanity. See, here's what I'm afraid of. We so often relate sin to humanity. I don't think we should do that. We're not sinful in our humanity. We're sinful in our fallenness. And our fallenness has marred our humanity. Do you know that the least human thing that we can do is sin? Think about it. We have these sayings that we kind of adopted. To err is human. No, to err is to be fallen. We have flesh. That's our fallenness. When we look at Jesus, this is what we see. We not only see God, and that's true. It's theology in motion. Everything Jesus does, everything he says, everything he thinks is revealing God the Father to us. Revealing God to us because he is God. He's also revealing humanity to us. And everything that humanity is intended to be, created to be. And so here is the work. Listen, here is the work that the Spirit is doing within us as He is restoring our humanity. As He restores us into the image of Christ. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, that's not just a sermon that Jesus is proclaiming. He is providing an outline for His life. What is He doing? He's given us a picture of what humanity is to be. So when we think about maturity, we have to ground that in the knowledge of Christ. This is why we help each other grow in the knowledge of the Lord, so that we can get a picture of all that he intends for us to be in our humanity, and the Spirit does that work of restoring us in that. You get that? And this fullness should be expressed individually, but also corporately together as the body of Christ. Go back to the beginning of this section. Back to that word, all. Here's what I'll say. And if you're looking for an application this morning, this is the application. This is what I've been praying all week. This is what I was praying this morning. This is the application. Again, the gospel never calls us to do. It causes us to believe. So here is the picture that we need to believe that God is doing. 
Okay? We have to desire this picture before we will work toward this picture. It is a heart question. So let me ask you kind of a strange question this morning. What do you dream? What is your dream? I've said this before. We're not pushed about by what we know. We're pulled about by what we dream, what we long for, what we love. And our culture has shaped us to dream. We dream. We have tons of vision. All of us do. But our culture has really kind of distorted that and caused it to be so individualistic. I have dreams for myself. I have dreams for my ambition. I have dreams and a vision for what I want to accomplish in my career. I have a vision for what I want my 401k to be at retirement age. I have a vision for my family. I have a vision for my kids and all that I want to them to see them achieve. I have a vision for all of these things. Here's the thing. None of that is wrong, but it's a question of supremacy. We read this in the scriptures. The question is, does our hearts align with this? And everything that I just said about the visions and dreams that we have too often take us away from this. And we put all of our time and all of our talent and all of our treasure towards these visions that we have because we're pulled about by what we love. And brothers and sisters, I think the prayer that we can pray today is God align my heart with your heart. God, help me to desire this for my brothers and sisters at Westwood. Oh, God, would you show me how you have equipped me? Show me how I can work out of those giftings to build up this body, to pour into my brothers and sisters, because I desire for them to be mature, to measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. I desire unity. Those things we have to work for, but we have to have a vision for it first. Is this your dream? If we do not dream this, we will not pursue this. And here are three things, I believe, from our culture that prevent us from this. The first is consumerism. Our posture towards the church is, what can the church do for me? If that's our posture, we're never going to pursue this vision. And what's worse is we're going to get each, we're going to get in each other's way. We're going to be stumbling blocks to each other. Not only that, but church is going to be something that we just attend. It's going to become the margin. These visions are more important than this. And we don't understand even what the purpose for this is. And so we come and we consume and we leave. And we never think about how my life is to be poured out for the people around me. We never think about the maturity that we all need pushing others into that maturity. Consumerism is so Dangerous And brothers and sisters, it has crept into our hearts. We need to search for that. We need to make sure it's emptied of that. Number two, silos. Silos. We talked about this some with gospel groups and gospel plus groups. We prefer to be around people that we are comfortable to be around. And so in the church, so often we create these silos, these ministry silos of people that all share a single identity, a certain identity. And we get into those things and we grow comfortable and we become more and more detached from the body. Listen, I struggle with this with student ministry quite often. I see a place for student ministry, but we're constantly trying to connect those students to the body so that we don't create a silo. And our life groups can become silos. 
These are the people that I am comfortable with. These are the people that I want to be with. And pretty soon there's no ministry happening at all. We have to be careful to guard against that. To not come to church to look to see how I can plug in with other people that are like me. But to get a fuller vision of who I am to be in this body to pursue this picture. The third one is breadth and depth. Breadth and depth. We settle for breadth instead of trying to go deeper. I've mentioned this before. Let me highlight it for you. We live in a culture where it's easy to have great depth in the scriptures. We listen to another podcast. We use another canned material. We do another DVD study. We go to this class and that class. And those things are good. And we learn some things from those things. But we are constantly, um, we are constantly depending on other people to struggle in the scriptures for us. And then we just, we just receive. And then when somebody comes up to us with a true struggle and they ask, help me from scriptures understand how I can see God in this or help me to understand how I'm going to respond to this, we don't, we can't do it. We don't have the capacity because the experts do that. So we point them to the podcast or we point them to the study or we point them. I'm convinced that we will not pursue this vision until we begin to bring in our breath and push towards depth. I want to take ownership of getting in the word. I want to struggle with others in the word, not for just somebody to teach me about it, but to struggle to get in it. Does that make sense? These are three things that I believe hinder that. Brothers and sisters, we have to dream this. We have to catch this vision. We have to desire this before we will move towards it. Okay? Finally, number three, there's a purpose in all of this. The progression is equip, work, build. The picture is that we are to do that until we all reach, we all attain to this vision that God has for us. By the way, God is working that out. He's going to be faithful to do it. It's beautiful, isn't it? That gives us our confidence to be able to do it. Thirdly, the purpose, both a positive and a negative aspect. It begins with the negative. Look at the next verse there. So that. Where does that so, so that belong? Well, to equip the saints so that. Here's the purpose for all of that. Here's the negative, so that we may no longer be, this is the negative aspect, so that we may no longer be children. That word children there carries the idea of gullibility, that we would no longer be gullible in our faith, but instead we would be rooted and grounded in something, rooted and grounded in something that is steadfast. We are to grow up, in other words. Okay? Here's the truth. God desires, uh, God's desire and intention is not for us to remain immature and anemic. His desire is for us to grow. His desire is for us to grow up. His desire is to mature us. And we've already seen that through this passage. We're to grow up in unity. We're to grow up in knowledge. We're to grow up in faith. We're to grow up in practice. Maturity is not optional. And we can pursue maturity with confidence because we know that that's what the Spirit will do within us. It's not an optional thing. So that we may no longer be children. And listen to the very descriptive language that Paul uses here. We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let's work through this. And tossed to and fro. Do you just get that idea? Tossed to and fro by the waves. This word waves is talking about crashing waves. It's not just gentle waves on a beach. This is the kind of thing that sinks a ship. Okay? Look at, uh, or listen to Hebrews 5, 
And what Paul says here about this, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's this picture of maturity. And Paul is really exhorting these brothers and sisters. You should be at a certain level by now, but you're not. You're not growing into that maturity. So you're more prone to be tossed to and fro by the waves. These things come and go. It's unstable. So a little bit later in Hebrews 13, we see a contrast. Instead of being tossed to and fro by the waves, we are to be anchored in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. We are to be anchored in something that is steadfast and immovable, and that is Christ. Next, he says, you're carried about by every wind of doctrine. This word wind, there are multiple words for wind in the original language. This one means a violent wind. This is the kind of wind that uh, caused the disciples to think that they were going to die when Jesus was asleep in the boat. Okay, same word used there by every wind of doctrine. Once again, something that comes and goes, something that is unstable, very strong. Does this not. Is this not a picture of our culture? I was thinking about this this week. Our culture is so carried about by strong winds that people are routinely getting canceled for things that they said 10 years ago that were culturally appropriate that no longer are. Now, I'm not affirming or de- denying that. I'm just saying, look at our culture, right? Things that we would have thought our culture would never adopt now is readily celebrated. We live in a violent culture when it comes to the winds of doctrine. By every wind of doctrine. What's the contrast to this? Well, Psalm 119, 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We don't have to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. If we're anchored in the word of God. Hebrews 2.1 gives us a great warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Brothers and sisters, if we are not immersing ourselves, immersing ourselves into the Word of God, you will be carried away. Like we had Dr. Nathan Finn here a few years ago, and he said something that wasn't original to him, but it stuck with me, and I know it stuck with many of you. We do not drift into holiness. We don't. So we better tie ourselves in. And by the way, I have a responsibility for you in that, and you have a responsibility for me in that. We are to pursue that together, that unity that stays us tied to the truth. Because I don't want you to drift. I don't want you to be carried about by human cunning in the NASB, the trickery of men. The word literally has the idea of dice playing, right? It's men in the back alley that would lure you in. Hey, come, win some money. And they've got the whole game rigged. But once they get you in there and they get the dice in your hand, it's too late. You've been deceived. By craftiness in deceitful schemes, he says. Second Corinthians 4.2. Paul says, he uses that word in this context. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Paul says, we don't use schemes in preaching the gospel. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He uses this term in the adverse way. We need to be careful for it in this context, by craftiness 
and in in deceitful schemes. Turning your Bible over to Colossians 2, I want us to see a parallel of this. Colossians 2. This is how Paul warns about this here. This is right after, by the way, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now listen to the warning, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you what? Captive. Who is Paul's audience here? Who is Paul's audience? Is it possible for the church to be taken captive in this way? Yes. It's possible for believers to be taken captive. Paul's saying that. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what is to be our measure? Christ. We measure every wind that comes about, everything that seeks to carry us about, everything that seems to toss us, we measure by the stability of Christ. And here is the truth. We cannot measure by Christ if we do not grow in knowing the measure of Christ. Let me say that again. We cannot measure by Christ if we do not grow in knowing the measure of Christ. Are you growing into Christ? Are you bringing brothers and sisters along because you care that they grow into Christ? Are we being intentional in this way, church? Are we being intentional in this way? There's a certain fittedness that we are to work towards. And I love this little book by Kevin Van Hooser. It's called Hearers and Doers. I think we may have a couple out here. But in this book, it's, it's primarily written to pastors. And he's talking about the place of theology in the church and the teaching ministry of the church right in line with what we see right here in Ephesians 4. And what he's saying is, is that the people of God need to attain a fittedness to do the work of the ministry. And so pastors have the task of teaching to equip for that fittedness. Okay? This is where he makes the transition in his argument. He says, what makes the church unique is the kind of fittedness in view and the means by which we obtain it. Make no mistake, and listen to this, a, cur- a church vested in making disciples must become a fitness culture. A fitness culture. How does one build a culture? When more and more people begin to dream the vision and get the objective and get the picture that that is exactly what God intends to do with his church right here. It's through the teaching of his word to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. That we are all working towards a fittedness. It's interesting, isn't it? I love how JT works so hard every week at trying to... uh, trying to um, shape the worship service with songs that kind of feed into the truth that's preached each week. And just a couple of days ago, he came into my office. He said, what do you think about this song before the sermon? And my first reaction, you remember what we sang? Uh, for, the, for the calls. My first reaction was, man, that's a mission song. We probably should sing. Wait a second. We are so trained to think that missions takes place out there. Can I submit this to you? We're not going to be worth much in the mission if we don't begin with a culture of fittedness for the mission. And that mission begins in our homes. 
That mission begins on our street and in our neighborhood. That mission begins wherever we are going. And there is a fittedness that takes place that equips us for that mission. The truth is that mission begins right here in this church. One of the things I love about our church is we have such a passion for global missions. I love that about Westwood. Oh, that we would have the same passion for this. I think it's there. Praise God for that. Praise God for the way I see things happening. But can't we strive for more? Can't we pray that all of us would gain this vision and dream this dream and pursue it with all of our hearts? Let's wrap this up. After the negative, he gives a positive purpose. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, speaking. That is a role that he gives all of us. All of us are to speak the truth in love. But there's two aspects to this. First is truth. In order to speak the truth, what needs to happen? I need to know the truth. There's a fittedness that I have to have. There's a fitness that I have to attain in order to speak the truth. I have to know the truth. I have to be grounded in the truth. But the other aspect of this is in love. In love, uh, in the student ministry this semester, we've been doing a, a series on love, and we've been pulling heavily from 1 John. And one of the things I wanted the students to hear comes from 1 John 4.16. It's kind of become a base verse for us. And John there writes this. He says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here's the truth. If we are not abiding in God, both individually and together, and we are not abiding in the experience of his love, we will not be conduits of his love. And here's the truth, and we know this, that it is possible to exhort and rebuke in love. And that's part of the speaking, but it's also to encourage and build up. This is a role that we all must embrace and understand that we are to do, rather speaking the truth in love. In fact, go ahead and put that uh, slide up, Bryce. We went over this in the new members class just, uh, just a few days ago, that this is kind of the, um, the, the definition for discipleship that, that we have embraced here at Westwood through this book called The Trellis and the Vine that we've, uh, that's been very foundational for us. Notice there are four P's in this. Discipleship happens as God's people, through prayerful dependence on the Spirit and perseverance, proclaim the Word of God into the lives of others. Let me say that again. Discipleship happens as God's people, through prayerful dependence on the Spirit and perseverance, proclaim the Word of God into the lives of others. So who are the people? All of us. This is what discipleship is to look like in the church. Not a few people doing it. Everybody. Doing what? In prayerful dependence on the Spirit and in perseverance speaking, proclaiming the word of, life, word of God into the lives of others. Listen, every program that we have in this church is designed to put people in context to do that. And there is not one program in our church, including this morning, where anyone is expected to come in and be passive. We have responsibility to each other. As we sing this morning, sing out of a heart for your neighbors in your pew to get a glimpse of how beautiful Christ is. To sing these truths with all of my heart. 
to interact with people, to follow up on what is preached, to talk to each other, to be invested. When we go to life groups, it's not just the leader and the host who are fulfilling functions. Everyone is. We are ministering to one another. This is why I think it's so important that we strive for diversity in our groups so that we don't grow comfortable and we experience the power of the gospel as we push each other deeper into Christ. In Sunday school, it's not just a teacher in a class. We are interacting with one another. We're pushing each other. We're speaking the word into each other's lives. Why? Because we desperately want each other to grow into maturity into him. The question is, is that the vision that we have? Is that our vision? Oh, that we would be captivated by this vision. Why? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. This is not a burden. It's a gift. Don't look at maturity as a burden. It's a gift that the Spirit is going to work within you. That we are to grow up in every way, in every way, into Him who is the head, into Christ. That is knowledge of Him, that's dependency in Him, that is reflection of Him. He is the head from who the whole body makes the body grow. I almost entitled this sermon that. It is the whole body that makes the body grow. Doesn't that sound redundant? But that's the truth. It's the whole body making the body grow. It's joined and held together by the head who is Christ, by every joint with which it is equipped so that it builds itself up in love. The truth is, brothers and sisters, we can't do this. But the Spirit intends to do this through us. This is what the Spirit intends to do through us. I love what F.F. Bruce says. He said, it is from the living Christ, who is the head, that his people receive through the Spirit all that they need to make them effectively his people. Effectively his people. Not just by identity, but through the way we live. Effectively his people. You see, we are dependent. And it's good that we are confronted with our own dependency. We are dependent on Christ, who is our head, who holds us together, who brings us together, who achieves this unity, who is not down the dividing wall. And in the place of two men, there is now one man in him. He is the one that accomplishes all of that. He is also the one that brings the growth in us. He is the one that is going to complete this work in us. But here is the other side of that coin. We are also dependent on each other. We are also dependent on each other. And so here's the truth. Our unity is not contingent upon. Unity in the world is contingent upon, isn't it? But if you believe like me, you you hold the things that I do, you're like me, you're against me, you're this, you're that. Here it's not contingent upon. It is something that accomplishes, uh, that is accomplished through Christ as we grow together in him. And the question is, is that the vision that we have for each other? So that it builds itself up in love for God and his will and for our family in him. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. I want to invite you first this morning. Just that term holy ones in Christ. Ask you first, is that who you are? It has nothing to do, it's not a morality question. I'm not asking you how good you are in your estimation or anybody else's. I'm not asking you if you are holy in what you have done or not done. I'm asking, have you, have you placed your faith in Jesus, the one who accomplished everything necessary 
so that you may have right standing before God being reconciled to him. If you've not done that or if you have questions about that, we would invite you to come and talk to us about that this morning. That's the starting point for you. The question I have for us as believers, those who are in Christ, is very simple. Is this our vision? Is this the role that we are embracing? Is this how we are postured towards one another? Do we dream this for the church? Is this the dream that guides all the other dreams and visions that we have? Or are those things at war with each other? Or have we given ourselves over so much to our our self-shaped dreams that we have no room, even we don't, we're not even aware of this vision that we should be pursuing. Oh, that we would be captivated. God, I pray that you would do that in our hearts. Lord, that we would have a vision for all until all attain this maturity. God, I pray that our heartbeat would be discipleship. Lord, that we want to know you, but we want our brothers and sisters around us to know you. And Lord, we would even be willing to posture ourselves in different places, even to to go into uncomfortable situations, Lord, so that we can grow and so that we can grow in love for one another and push each other into you. I thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit that achieves this, God. I pray, Lord, that you would just capture our imaginations this morning for this picture. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.